Hey, 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 it's me, Katie here. Grab a notebook, add a cuppa, and join me in the Sociology Staff Room. Hello and welcome to the Sociology Staff Room today. Uh, we're, we're continuing with our ongoing theme, which is sort of around teacher wellbeing. I know we've looked at imposter syndrome. We're very lucky today to speak to um, Asfer Ali to talk about um, positive psychology um, and how we can embed that in education. Now, obviously we are sociology teachers and we've got sort of crossovers with the social sciences. So I think, first of all, thank you for coming and spending your sort of afternoon with me are you good today yeah i'm really well thanks really happy to be here oh i'm happy to have you so first of all obviously i think i sort of again i keep having all these disclosures i find myself sort of taking this route like you know making sure that everyone knows where i'm coming from for this i'm personally something that i'm really really motivated interested in it is positive psychology um although trained as a sociology teacher i think something i read a book that i think i've mentioned a while ago which was called the happiness advantage i don't know if you've heard of that um, a short anger and it's really sort of was really resonated with me and that's something I've been sort of considering in the background so I know we've been, had discussions virtually around positive psychology and, and what that means and if that's something I'm interested in pursuing myself privately so there's a sort of a layer of my bias that I'm sort of highlighting here so first of all those people that may have not come across it because obviously as I said, it's not been accredited by the BACP yet, which is positive psychology, and it's on that journey. But those people may have not come across it. What is positive psychology? Um, so I think you've given a really great introduction just by talking about the fact that it's quite new and it's an emerging school of psychology. Um, and new is a subjective term, but if we go back to, I don't know, about 30 years ago or so, we had um, psychologist Martin Seligman, and I'm going to really try my best to pronounce his name because he is the founding father i would say of positive psychology so it's important to mihai chitsen mihai and martin seligman together they kind of created this positive psychology model which was about taking psychology beyond the mental health model beyond the applications of psychology being from a negative to zero which is what things like therapy and counseling do into this new framework of going from zero into the plus um, and focusing much more on mental wealth as well as mental health, um, subjective well-being and psychological well-being, themes of things like what helps us flourish, what helps us thrive, what strengths do we have that can take us from one strength to other strengths. And in particular in recent years, there's been a huge application of how that positive psychology can be applied, not just on an individual level, but also on organizational levels and how, how we can make cultural changes um, and obviously our area of expertise will be in education and, and there's been some recent research on how um, that can be applied and how it's going to carry on being applied over the next few years. Yes, yeah, so that's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously the word new, like you just mentioned, isn't that new in terms of, of research has been around as, an, as I understand for 30 years. And like you said, it's not just looking at sort of in, on an individual level. And this is where I suppose for us as sociology teachers, can we take anything from this and what could that be? And that's where sort of why I'm speaking with you today is you know what can we do like that you said on a sort of more cultural level within an organization so so i'm more interested about that and really sort of inquire about that, that today so first of all obviously i know you've been teaching sociology for eight years you've then made that move into positive psychology you well explained there you know i suppose one of the things and some of the sociology teachers who are on more sociology than psychology or psychology more than sociology or for some of us, you know, we know that people don't always come in from either social sciences and come in through another route 
into sociology, whether it be through media or through uh, politics, can they coexist then? Because obviously we want to, we're looking at the sort of next step is in a sort of cultural level, but obviously we know there's those ongoing debates in sociology about whether it's a science or not, and obviously you know how that sits with with psych, psychology in this terms for positive psychology. Can they coexist? And obviously was that an easy or difficult transition from you to, from teaching sociology then into taking that the MA in positive psychology? Um, I hope you won't mind. I'm going to be quite um, honest. <laughs> with yeah, no, that's what, what that's all about. We love a bit of honesty. Um, so when that question was first posed to me about can sociology and psychology coexist, my my initial thought actually was annoyance in that, <laughs> oh, here we go again. Because for me, the two of them are conjoined twins. You, you, I, I yeah. really cannot see, I really cannot see a life... Um, where the both of them are not interacting in some way or another um, and that might be my bias because i've come from a, my undergrad was both in sociology and psychology i studied them both at a level i love them both and i've always wanted to teach them both so in terms of the transition it wasn't difficult at all and if anything this new air quotes new branch of positive psychology was really a bit of me uh, in terms of who i am as a person outside of teaching as well but I think with regards to how it fits in with sociology, as with any part of psychology, it has to fit in. Um, and one of the examples I can give with regards to that is I get quite upset. The reason why I got um, uh, annoyed when I first saw the question about why why is this still a question is because I really wish and I hope that the future of our social sciences and the future of our social science teachers can start seeing the interdisciplinary nature of our subject. Um, and as part of those eight years, for seven of those years, I was a, t uh, a trainee, t uh, a teacher trainer for uh, PGCE students in particular. And as the generations went on, I started seeing this kind of tunneling of um, students who, PGCE students, teacher trainers who wanted to only specialize in sociology. And they got really freaked out if they were ever asked to do any kind of psychology and vice versa. And I thought that was kind of a, a bit of a sad way in which our education system is going especially the, these are like the younger trainees and if we were to compare them to older trainees or people who have been in the industry for quite a while m who might seem a little bit more flexible in the sense that well you know we've got our pgce we know that this is world world renowned we can go and teach anywhere we can teach anything if you've got the secondary pgce and uh, we kind of keep our options broad in that sense if you go about learning the right subject knowledge but with sociology and psychology, I worry about the future of it being quite tunneled. So I guess my plea is to new teachers who are thinking about going into it or people who are already established, please don't underestimate the interdisciplinary nature of your subject. We teach the sociology of whether you're teaching AQA or OCR, the application of it to education, to families, to religion, to crime and deviance, showing how far reaching it is. So it's, you know, it's a real shame if we can't apply it in our everyday lives within our curriculum as well you know like we we study animal farm in gcse english literature and i'm not sure many people are able to apply that to being a marxist you know a, a marxist commentary on, on 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 communism and so on um and I, it's kind of like a, not to get too political but that is how interdisciplinary we are it is a leftover of the last 10 years in British education and how it's gone to kind of minimizing sociology and almost taking out the critical, the free thinking from it. So my plea in answer to your question is, can sociology and psychology coexist? Is yes, please, <laughs> please do the effort. So no, just please. yes, 
but also plays. That's interesting because yeah. I, I think, like you said, it is. An, I, I I hear your sort of uh, a frustration with that, and I think it's something that actually is quite new. I think in like so when I first started teaching, like um, they sort of you were a sociology and a psychology teacher, were willing to do that, and obviously now, and maybe that might play into some of our previous episodes. We've talked about the imposter syndrome, where younger teachers or new to teaching um, may feel that because of the fact that they're like, oh, you, you you're you're qualified as this, and therefore. You, you know you're not maybe a specialist on this so yeah they they potentially do coexist or not they do coexist according to yourself and and like you said particularly obviously that methods shout out something that's very sort of overlap between them i feel like it's a conversation almost a separate conversation and i know we're both conscious of not waffling so i will i'll just i just put a what do i put, a little mark on this or something maybe to come back at a later date on another podcast but wonder if it's something to do with and this is a question more than a than a statement. I wonder if it's to do with the sort of, I don't know, the quantifiable element of, of psychology and the kudos that external, not internal beings, whether that be politicians or whatever, um, credit that versus the sort of the BA element or MA element of, of sociology. I don't know. I just, I throw it out there as a question and something to come back to as a later date. So if you're saying, yes, they do coexist and I'm only like that passionate plea there from you, um, then how do we then interweave something like positive psychology? And I know there's been a lot of research around positive psychology and education. I know there's a lot of work going on around that. How can we interweave that into our subjects? First of all, what are the sort of, I suppose, golden nuggets on a teacher level? How can we take stuff that's like maybe theoretical, where would we, you know, is there anything that you sort of read or looked at that we can bring into the classroom? And then maybe in a minute, like after that, explore maybe from a head of department what we can do. Because obviously we probably are heads of department of both sociology and psychology and criminology and health and social care as well. So first, first of all, subject teacher level. Um, well, I just kind of want to go back onto something that you said very briefly, actually, when you said, I wonder if it is the quantifiable nature of psychology mm. and and actually, uh, when, as you were saying it, I was thinking positive psychology really, for want of a better phrase, has the answers for this in the sense that I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. I do feel there is a fear of, oh, I can't do psychology. It's a bit too scientific for me. But it's language like that that restricts us. Mm. And positive psychology opens up, actually, and says there is no such thing as this is too something. You can learn these things. And I suppose there's an element that perhaps most of us are familiar with, with um, things like the growth mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck. And that's been, I know, hot on the agenda for the last five to 10 years or so. So positive psychology is kind of like an extension of that going into a much more organizational level. So then to relate it back to what you were saying in terms of the golden nugget, on a subject teacher level, I would personally, from my research, I would argue that it, it does come top down. So what culture is the head teacher portraying and then the senior leadership and then middle management and then subject teacher and then to our students and so on and so forth and I was just you know making a couple of notes on some of those golden nuggets and they are going to sound as I say them listeners might kind of roll their eyes and be like Duh, but isn't that obvious but it's amazing how it is some of the small techniques and tips that actually make the biggest differences one of them being thinking about how we just communicate with each other so as a line manager myself, and you know, I'll throw my hands up and say that I was not the most effective line manager in my first year. Um, and I had to learn how to become a better one as I, as I went through. And a lot of that came down from positive psychology tools, as well as coaching tools. Um, I'll give you a classic example. When we're, when we're kind of giving feedback to our students, we, I don't know, use the classic www what went well, and even better if. 
and just the difference between using even better riff rather than saying what went wrong that's a positive psychology tool in itself but we kind of really underestimate that actually we are using psychology in our work whether you are a teacher of english or sociology or art for example and if we start to tap into the fact that yes we might be in the more ba element or the creative aspects of uh, of our subject pedagogy but actually we are still using educational psychology tools we're dealing with people and that kind of goes back to our previous question of can psychology and sociology coexist well it's in everything we do anyway and until that's brought to the forefront i don't think we'll ever have that confidence to say yeah we are actually in psychology as well we're living and applying psychology so conversation techniques and tips saying to your pgce student you know instead of well that lesson went rubbish <laughs> How are we going to, we're never going to do that again. Let, let's cap that. It doesn't work well for that student. Let them reflect on it and let them kind of go intrinsic and realize if you're going to do that again, what might you change next time? There's a huge dynamic change. If we were to talk to uh, middle management or senior leadership, you know, imagine after a nice little half term break, we go back to our Monday afternoon CPD session and we're falling asleep and our heads are nodding and bobbing and we're not really taking any of it in. There's a huge difference between complaining about that versus focusing on what positive thing that we can take away from it and even if there is nothing we can offer feedback at least in a constructive manner which is that it was great love the effort you put into it but perhaps can we try it at this time or in this manner and so on so in terms of golden nuggets i really think for especially for our listeners there try and think about what you're already doing and that's a kind of appreciative inquiry way that um uh, I can't remember his name, but it is an aspect of positive psychology called appreciative inquiry, where you focus on what already works rather than reinvent the wheel. Look at what already exists in terms of strength and really harness that. And I think that's a big plea to our middle managers as well. Look at your staff team and your students, what already works and how can then you bring your staff to uh, really fly with their authenticity in that sense. Mm, so two, two really good things. One said was that obviously communication, which seems really obvious, but um, that's the power of, of communication, both verbal and non-verbal is so important. I think there's so, so much that's said from that um, or not said as well. I think it's powerful what you don't say as well, isn't it? And then obviously you mentioned as well about um, enhancing the strengths of what people say uh, or skills they have within the recognising what's already existing, whether that be in the students or your department. I know there's something previously, I think when we're looking at imposter syndrome and supporting ECTs and non-specialists, that seems to be a common theme that if we try and shoehorn people into things they're not particularly that confident, all you're going to do is get exasperate that sort of, I can't do this always this is difficult but actually if you look at the sort of strengths that people already have then actually you can build upon that in regards to um the golden nuggets in regards to like i know just sort of your day-to-day -day, i know you talked about like on a cultural level and on a on a senior leadership level and filtering that down is there anything that we could do like i said going back to that teacher student relationship i know we've got communication i know we've got the idea of look at the strengths within your students but is there any anything else that we can do within our, our own pedagogy i think um one of my biggest uh, it's the first one that comes to mind one of my most effective ones has always been to offer choice um and if you think about i i guess the best way to kind of uh, plant this within theory is go back to our education topics in the sociology of education whether it's the aqa version or the ocr version but our students are very good at criticizing the education system because you know it's what they've known that they're, they're in it and so on 
And I don't know if anyone remembers teaching like the Summer Hill School lesson about uh, free schools and, and forest schools and all the different types of schools there are. And students love the idea of that compared to what they're currently in. And if you think about what the biggest difference is there, it is this element of freedom or being given choices about how to flourish in their own skin. And one of the things that I found most effective in whether it's my classroom activities or um, flip learning or homework or anything that I'm setting with regards to the students, it's always been to offer an element of choice. The end product is going to be the same. It's the essays, it's the 20 mark questions and so on and so forth. But the route to get there does not look the same for everyone. And I know, again, some listeners are probably rolling their eyes and thinking, well, there isn't that differentiation. But I think where there is differentiation CPD happening in your school, engage with it, but in a, you know, perhaps taking on that positive psychology route or, or that head, or taking it outside and beyond that CPD session and thinking, right, I've, I've learned about what differentiation looks like, but in what way is that going to help the well being and the flourishing of my students now in the classroom and when they take this away for homework? Because I've got my student X and my student Y who really hates writing these paragraphs or whatever it is that you've got them to do how can i get them to get there can they verbally want to talk it through can they walk it through can they do it pictorially can they do it um it, it, you know through a rap i don't know whatever it looks like for that particular student but in essence um i i know we're all expertise experts in in, in differentiation but sometimes i feel that there is an element of choice that gets taken away because management have told us you need to give them x amount of flip learning per week and you need to make sure that they have this amount of writing and so on and so forth and that kind of quashes that creativity a little bit yeah that's interesting like what you said is thank you for that because i think you're saying about it's choice but actually is it really choice in the sense of if you're giving a list of three different ways to sort of present it you're not giving the students really that choice it's almost giving I suppose having high expectations of your students and knowing they're going to make the right choice because sometimes we go right I don't know I'm trying to think of different strategies that have been out in the last 20 years you know where they've got like silver gold or whatever bronze yeah. level you know you're giving them a choice but you've created the choice and actually if it's open differentiation like everyone has to sort of get the equivalent of gold but how they get there like you said is up to them then then it's them working it out from this particularly I suppose, with our older students isn't it where they they might know the strategies that work best for them to get to that point um and also with regard to i suppose you know revision or yeah like note taking that that type of thing we have our own strategy works for us. actually it's really interesting sort of again it's a nice diversion here um i'm really keen keen to um explore black history month and i've sort of put a post out there for people to come forward and stuff like that but i was thinking about this with my own students and i was weird i've got a couple of them that are on board that well actually more than a few that are on board to do something and going back to that idea of choice it made me think about that which is what you were saying was i initially started typing something out and i thought no this is this is my understanding of it it's not their understanding we've got lots of mixed different ethnicity ethnicity backgrounds in our school and actually it's something as simple as that as being i suppose I don't know if the right word is brave enough or, you know, thinking, well, actually, I'm let them students tell their own story and use their own voice rather than, and let them flourish rather than go, oh, we need to cover this bullet point, this bullet point, this bullet point, and actually handing it over to them. Of course, I'll, I'll double check just in case there's anything that's not appropriate for that age group to be shared, whatever it is. But sometimes, I don't know if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but is does choice, do we eliminate choice out of fear? I don't. I don't know. I'm just trying to think about it a bit more. So it's like, when you're talking, I was thinking, yeah, actually, that really makes sense because democratic teaching 
actually gets the best results, doesn't it, when students are fully engaged. But like you said, they've got to get an exam at the end of it. They've still got to do a, an essay. Um, but actually, do you maximise the most out of the, the students by doing that? And then do we not give choice out of fear? What, what are your views on that? I think you're spot on. I think us teachers are under so much pressure from management and then management from Ofsted and Ofsted from government and so on and so forth. It just, it constantly goes on that cycle, but we are under so much pressure that we feel we can't give too much choice because we've got to get our three week marking cycle or whatever it is done. Especially, I, I do feel, uh, I think, you know, especially in larger sociology or social science departments, we're quite privileged in that this takes up our timetable, but for teachers who have to teach little bits of everything or you know, maybe our colleagues in science or maths, you have several different key stages and so on. It's a, perhaps a little bit harder for them to do so, but 100% agree with you that it is fear and worry about our workload and time management that stops us from giving too much choice. But on the other side, we know that it is that, um, it was the vulnerability that you were talking about, getting the students to tell their own stories. And, you know, we did a, we did an activity last year during Black History Month, which was, uh, it was about and we were teaching about the social inequalities of ethnicities and students had to deliver a TED talk of anything of their choice um, for a good two minutes. It was just a two minute TED talk that they had to deliver anything of their choice about ethnic inequalities in social uh, in sociology. And they ran with it. And a part of it was telling their own story. Part of it was telling, bringing in sociological theories and so on and so forth. But it, it gave them a sense of living and being in the sociology which only then enhanced their understanding of the theory and therefore the 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 writing um, for for the essays and the exams. So, no, I, I totally hear what you were saying. I think there was a second part to it, which I can't fully remember. So I don't, please I, remind. I, I, don't, I don't think. Well, I think that was it. it doesn't come out of fear. And actually, what you just said there was quite interesting, isn't it? That um, it was a really good example. I think you just gave there was that sometimes it's that letting go, and you gave that really simple way of of teaching something. So. You know, you've, you've set it up, you've done the flipped learning, the students know what ethnic inequalities potentially are in society, they've read the studies, but then giving it over to the students and then narrating those that feel comfortable in order to do that might have to be written. So, but just a really good example there, you know, student, like you, you present your own TED talk on this and actually them doing that themselves, would, there's a lot of process and then they're probably more engaged, more flourish you know, more likely to read around the subject and then become experts within that own field. And obviously it's not taking, it's not going off on a complete different tangent, you're spending weeks on it and you have to talk in the syllabus. It's a two minute TED talk. It can be set as a bit of homework and they can link it to any of the topics, I suppose they've looked at, which are either cultural identity, family, health, media. I mean, there's, you know, ethnicity fil filters all the way through. So yeah, like it, I suppose it's like, like you said, I like the word, I mean, it's the word flourish is used a lot, isn't it, in positive psycholo yeah. psychology? Actually, what you were saying is you're, you're talking about, I know we're talking about a cultural sh um, shift and change here, but everything that we've just discussed in the last two minutes or so comes down to a feeling of another big word in positive psychology is comes down to psychological safety. Do our students feel safe in the classroom to explore, to make mistakes, to get things wrong and to try again? And until that safety is established, the student can't flourish in their own learning. So I know we're talking about doing TED Talks. That's going to be really daunting for someone who's an introvert and barely will say a word for the entire term. But offering the choice of, I don't know, so another activity I do is these Nando's takeaway menu type things. Um, and you've got it differentiated between the different spice levels. Um, but you say to the student that at, at least one point during this half term, you must attempt the stretch and challenge. Regardless of whichever one you do, you choose any one of those or pitch an idea to me and let me know if it's challenging enough for you. And I think that idea of building them up to that psychological safety and creating that culture is is not to be taken advantage. Uh, sorry, not to be taken for granted. 
because we as especially as social scientists teachers we're very good at creating that because we offer a voice for those students so use that to our advantage for sure and safety is so important. I know we've, I know we've looked at this before. It's such a, you know, it's highlighted a really important thing there that I think actually safety is really important in the sociology lesson because we do, we talk about things that can be triggering for students that are very sensitive for some students. Um, they may might, might be the minority group with it, whatever, whatever you're talking about within that lesson. So it, it could be to do with ethnicity, it could be to do with sexuality, it could do with ability, um, social class, or even gender, you know, you know, if you're teaching all girls school, but they're allowed boys into sixth form for argument's sake. So actually that safety is really, really important to be mindful of that in the students. Because obviously if they don't feel safe, then actually they're not gonna, you know, apply that learning to themselves, as well as then going to things you said before, which is communication and choice. They'll be sort of paralyzed by their fear uh, and won't be able to make choices or communicate effectively. Um, so that's a really important thing to be mindful of. I think sometimes you know, you sort of look at us so as we're all t just had a month now of the year 12s um, and they may be coming out of their shell just now, but we've now talked to them for nearly four weeks. And that's because of potentially that feeling of feeling safe, even if they've been through the whole school already. It's a new learning environment for them, a new expectation, a new teacher, that type of thing. Are there any sort of other takeaways from this? Are there any other things that you think, all oh, right, that's another golden nugget or they're the sort of the key threads along positive psychology that we as teachers can take away? There's so many, I'll be honest, but um, I think in terms of overarching themes, it's, yeah, psychological safety and not underestimating the tiny things that you do that can make a huge difference. And I think we are a product of our environment, a product of our schools and, and, and that, we're, that, that we're kind of working in. And I would just hope, it's my plea again to anyone who's middle managers and, and senior managers, especially to create that uh, create that environment where staff can feel that they can flourish. And otherwise, it's just an infectious thing. Positive psychology is purely infectious. Um, as I was saying just before I got on this call, I was at a closing session with my positive psychology peers. And after we've just finished our um, course, we were all feeling a little bit blue and glum, but being around each other and practicing the positive psychology interventions really kind of boosted everyone so just know that it, it it can happen through the little things but consistently and with the right support from management downwards for sure yeah definitely i mean funny enough i literally left i talked this morning i, I left a group of students and one of them said oh um made a comment about something to say oh, that they're, they're too nice and i said well is there such a thing as too nice can you be too nice and it was discussing we're just discussing that concept for some reason just because we just did and I had time in my lesson to do it you know and actually I, was, I had that conversation that if there is it a bad thing to be too nice that you can only positivity more positivity can come out and if you approach your lessons like I think we've you know I think there's a sort of literature around this at the moment that if you every lesson is a fresh lesson every student is a fresh student it's a new day if you've got a challenging group of students or particularly a challenging student itself it's those fresh starts and actually, you know, and sometimes it might not be about you, mightn't it? It might be that it's something else and it's just asking, are you okay? Might be, and I know like it's all really obvious stuff, but then we're, you know, I think I've used this before, this metaphoric plate of all the things we've got to do, whether that's like taking the register, respond to a fire alarm, an email, and teach sociology and psychology and everything else. It's really easy to sort of not be mindful of those things and sort of just react. If anyone's really, really, really wants to like, I mean, I know my book that I would suggest, but I've only just started on this journey myself and oh, I'm just, just going to go and get it because people want to know what it looks like. But is there a, oh, just 
come back into into field with my Britannia encyclopedias behind me that I got like I don't know <laughs> Facebook marketplace and my fake flower but that was the book I probably back to bump that's my book that I read and now I use it sort of like as almost like a dictionary is there anything that you just a final sort of suggestion of book if anyone's interested to take this further want to know a little bit more about it is there a book your go-to book you think right that's if someone's interested and wants to take a bit more on board of it doesn't necessarily want to do an ma in it or a qualification but would like to read more what would, what would be your go-to absolutely so um there's three things that i would uh kind of use to wrap up with which is the first first part is i'm really glad you mentioned about is it can you be too nice um and the honest answer to that is yes please let's not get confused let's not confuse positive psychology with toxic positivity which is just being nice and fluffy about everything because actually there's a whole field of research about that undermining positive psychology. Positive psychology has to be about encouraging flourishing and growth, which can sometimes be uncomfortable and doing the work that is necessary. Um, and that kind of leads me on to, I've got, I've got one of the books that I'm currently reading at the moment. Uh, some of you guys might have read, it's called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, and it's not necessarily related to positive psychology, but there is a big link. Um, just a quick synopsis. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk talks about 30 years working in trauma and how our bodies hold on to a lot of trauma. And this is something from my own personal journey that I learned while doing the positive psychology course is that as a teacher, I was holding on to a lot of trauma, negative psychology, and then projecting it. Um, and I was one of the popular teachers and we had excellent results throughout the last eight years and so on and so forth. But even with that, there were still things that I was doing on a day-to-day -day basis, which were not healthy for myself or even for my students. And it, about part of positive psychology is about breaking that cycle. So um, I guess that's the first part, which is do your own work, whatever that looks like, and just know where you are carrying yourself into the classroom. That's probably not the best thing to do. And the second book, which I don't have a copy of because it's very, very new, it's just got published this year, uh, written by my own lecturer and director of the um, Masters in Positive Psychology. It's called Applied Positive Psychology in Schools. Um, and it's by Dr. Andrea Geraldes Hayes and Yolanta Burke, but I'm happy to kind of write out that recommendation for you as well. Um, so you've got the spelling of it and everything. And that's really good because it's practical. It's literally applied, um, can apply to individual subject teachers as well as management staff. Um, and it's the book that I'm using to actually create my own training programs for schools. So my line of work now will be to go into schools and teach about positive psychology in workshops and how that can look both for leaders as well as for subject teachers in the classroom. Excellent. Yeah, I think there's definitely it's an emerging field for sure. Like I'm sort of, I think sort of seeing a more a lot more around it. I know I've heard of uh, both the sort of authors that you've mentioned, so I certainly will be reading a little bit more about it. Um, and I think just, just before we go, I want to say thank you. But also, I think it was really good that you mentioned about sort of the toxic. I think there's sort of a, a misunderstanding about positive psychology and just being happy. And actually, positive psychology is also not just being happy and actually saying no to things as well sort of remind yourself mm. your limits which i think is really important because i think people go oh that's okay just smile and go into the lesson and and that'd be okay or if, if things aren't working just go oh that's okay but actually it's it's more more than that so both for students and and for for teachers as well i think sometimes uh, people that say yes i can do it end up taking on more and more and more and more and more until then they can't do it anymore so that's important to to recognize that actually it's okay to say no as well um so 
thank you for your time. Thank you for no showing us the link between sociology and psychology and that, it, that there are more links than we probably like to imagine. Um, and wishing you well with um, your development of your training and, and positive psychology. Thank you for your time and have a lovely, lovely day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. The Sociology Staff Room is brought to you by tutor to you Sociology. Find us at tutor2u.net forward slash sociology or follow us on Twitter at tutor2usoc or Instagram at tutor2usoc. You can also join our very lively Facebook groups for sociology teachers. See you soon.